Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers on mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Good morning. Um, as our custom here in City Church, um, when I'm done reading, I would say this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying, thank you. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you, to ha- we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And this and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Can you hear me? Yes. Please, can we put our hands together for that beautiful lady? <laughs> so, welcome. If today is your first time, um, my name is Toki. We are glad to have you worshiping with us. And so, we are resuming our series on First Thessalonians. The series is titled Wait. First Thessalonians has five chapters. We are done the first three chapters, then we took a break to do a series on spiritual warfare. How many of us were blessed? And then we had our Easter services, and now we are resuming in chapter 4. So as you may already know from the title, the sermon is about sex, right? So I just wanted to get that out of the way. And I was a bit taken aback when I was assigned <laughs> this topic. I was like, what's going on? Is this a sub? I, said, I almost said, if you want to talk to me, talk to me direct. <laughs> Stop going through the corners. Well, <laughs> well, if you've been here for a while, you know that we did a series on sex not so long ago. Please, can I have a timer? We did a series on sex not so long ago. And so the question is, why are we having another sermon on sex when we've talked about sex extensively? So two reasons. First of all, that's what the passage is about, right? <laughs> well, the second one is actually in verse 1 of chapter 4, when Paul was exhorting and beseeching and encouraging the Thessalonian Christians about what he had actually told them before. And so he says this more explicitly in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, when he says, It is no trouble 
for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. And so while I'm going to encourage you to go back to our podcast, it's called The Gospel in Lagos, and that series on sex is called Christ and Sexuality. It's an awesome series. I also want to urge you to be present here in what God is doing today. There's a sense in which the Word of God is like a river. That's a saying that you don't step into the same river twice because it's ever fresh, it's ever new. And God has a word for us if only we'll open our hearts to him. And so with that in mind, I want us to go to God in prayer together. Ancient words ever true. Changing me and changing us all. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient word impart. And we ask, O oh God, that you open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of thy word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I was thinking the other day about words. And it was interesting how words evolve over time. And so a word may start up meaning something, but after a while it changes to something that may be totally different from its original meaning. So the obvious example is the word gay. It used to mean happy. But now it means what it means. <laughs> what about this one? Um, decimate. Decimate. Decimate means to, can anybody help me? Destroy, to annihilate, to totally scatter something. Well, initially, decimate meant to kill every tenth person. Right? So decade, decimal, decimate, they come from the same root word, which means ten. But the one that concerns us today is a word that used to be used to describe what people refer to as the most important meal of the day, breakfast. <laughs> but now it means heartbreak. <laughs> and the thinking behind it is that the same, the, the same way that breakfast is inevitable. <laughs> if you like, fast for 10 days. It's waiting for you in front. That's the same way everybody's heart will be broken. Somebody say, not my portion. <laughs> <laughs> you will eventually be served breakfast. And there's a real sense in which the gospel is kind of like that. The gospel eventually serves us breakfast. What I mean is that the gospel eventually confronts us and challenges an aspect of our lives that is at odds with it and for which we'll have to adjust. And this process is not often pleasant. And so why Paul has been commending the Thessalonians all this while, in verse 4, he also commends them, but he goes ahead to confront them on their attitudes towards sex. And in this type 7 titled Rethinking Sex, we are going to see that the gospel confronts our view of self-centered sex, points us to self-giving sex, and empowers us to wait for something even better than sex. And we are going to look at it under three headings. Confronting bad sex, Avoiding bad sex and better than sex. Someone is asking me what's better than sex. <laughs> but what's been going on in the book? A brief recap. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, from verse 9 to 10, Paul testifies that the gospel had three effects in the life of the Thessalonian church. He says that they turned from idols and began to serve the living God and finally, they began to wait for his son from heaven. But well, here's the thing. What serving idols meant for these people was really placating them. 
And so you really wanted to just settle them so you could go ahead to, with your life, go ahead and do the things you really want to do. So serving idols was really serving yourself. And Paul is saying that for a Christian, the focus of your life has turned from serving yourself to begin to serve God. Or as we see in verse 1 in the ESV, it says, walking in order to please God. And what does serving God look like? Paul says in verse 3 that it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. And we cannot understand how the Thessalonian church would have received this until we understand the context in which they lived. And so let's just look quickly at what the sexual values in Paul's time looked like. So for women, wives, they were expected to be chaste. Yeah, no surprises there. Women, adultery was really frowned upon. But for men, sex outside marriage was not considered wrong. In fact, it was even expected. And so the average male citizen was at any given time was sleeping with three, maybe four women. So he had his wife who was there to give him legitimate children to look after his home. He had his mistress who was kind of like a friends with benefits arrangement. They talked, they laughed, they also had sex. He had a concubine. And the concubine was strictly for snake in the monkey shadow. <laughs> strictly for helicopter. And finally, he had... <laughs> It was strictly for sex. Yeah. So finally, he had temple, there were temple prostitutes, and this was a big part of a lot of the religion of that time. This is a culture that, that sex was so mundane, sex was so common, that they had the same word for urinate and ejaculate. And this is the kind of people that Paul is telling. To this, these men, because Paul is writing to men, these are the men that Paul is telling to abstain from sexual immorality. And we think this message in 2021 is absurd. It was a lot more absurd to the first people that heard this. The gospel has always been countercultural. But Paul goes on to say that the reason why we live, why the way we live, is knowledge of God. Verse 4 to 5, it says that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate loss like the pagans who do not know God. How do people who do not know God live? In passionate loss. As in the word there, it means they are driven by their passions. And to be driven by your passions is to live with benefit to me. How does this make me look good? How do I get benefit? How does it satisfy me? To live with that benefit to me as our ultimate rule in life. And on the outworking of this kind of worldview, of this kind of lifestyle, is what we see in the Thessalonian culture. On the other hand, it says we should learn to control our bodies. So living like we know God means that we look at sex through God's eyes. And what does that look like? The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So right sex starts with realizing that human beings are not objects to be used for our own ends but they have inherent dignity and worth simply because they are human and made in the image of God. But not only that, being made in the image of God means that we reflect God in some way. God exists in the Trinity like we know. It means that he is three persons in one being. He is diverse, yet the same. And one of the ways humans reflect this nature of God is when the Bible says, it says in Genesis, but also in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, 
when it says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, diverse people, and two of them will become one flesh. But we see that this one flesh union should only happen after, and only after, the man has left his father and his mother and has cleaved to his wife. In other words, within the boundaries of heterosexual, monogamous marriage. He has left his father and his mother, so that's the wedding, the legal public display. He has cleaved to his wife. That's the emotional, personal connection. It's only after that that the fiscal consummation should occur. But becoming one flesh goes beyond just having sex. A writer that I like, he says, in becoming one flesh, it means that two persons share everything they have, not only their bodies, not only their material possessions, but also their thinking and their feeling, their joy and their suffering, their hopes and their fears, their successes and their failures. To become one flesh means that two persons become completely one with body, soul, and spirit, and yet remain two different persons. And C.S. Lewis, <laughs> I'm sorry, I always call C.S. Lewis my sermons. C.S. Lewis, a writer in the last century, goes on to say, to contrast this and say that the monstrosity, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, a sexual union, from all the other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. So it's like trying to get the pleasures of taste without swallowing and digesting by chewing things and spitting them out again. It doesn't work. In God's eyes, sex is much more than just an appetite. Sex is sacred because our bodies are sacred and because it reflects something about God. But the Bible doesn't only confront people who demean sex, who say sex is just like urinating, it's just like eating food. It also confronts, confronts people who idolize sex, who say, if I don't have sex, then my life is not complete. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, the next verse, Paul goes on to say that this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. He's saying that, yes, sex and marriage are sacred, but even they are not ultimate. They are just signposts that point to a greater reality of the unity of Christ and his church. And to engage in sex outside the boundary of covenant, outside the boundary of marriage, is to deny this reality, is to violate sex, is to violate ourselves, and to sin against God. And the Bible calls all misuse of sex, all sex outside God's boundaries, the Bible calls it sexual immorality. Or as we say in the KJV, fornication. <laughs> but to clarify, what the Bible means is not just penetrative sex outside of marriage. The Bible is referring to all sexual acts outside of marriage. A sexual act is anything that arouses you sexually, if I need to be explicit about that. And we see, actually, the Bible tells us something like this. If we see in Ezekiel chapter 23, <laughs> that's a story of two sisters, and we see there that whoredom, prostitution, is not just about having sex, but also committing sexual acts. It says, the word of the Lord came to me. There's one to three. Son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother. They played the whore in Egypt. They played the whore in their youth. How? There their breasts were pressed and their virgin bosoms handled. Paul says in verse one, 
of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. And we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you've received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, that you are bound more and more. He's saying that you need to make the objects of your life pleasing God because something fundamental about you has changed. Even though you are in the world, you are not of the world. You actually belong to another kingdom that is coming to replace this present one. And the way that you show that you're waiting for that kingdom is not by folding your hands and looking. It's not by escaping from the world, but by living according to the ethics of this new kingdom, despite what the culture around you is saying. And the way we have or do not have sex says something about our belief in Christ and his coming kingdom. Paul said that the Thessalonian Christians turned from idols to serve the living God and to wait for his son from heaven. This leads me to my second point, avoiding bad sex. And in verse 3 to 6, Paul gives us reasons. We're going to, see, we're going to examine three reasons in verse 3 to 6 why we should not misuse sex. Why we should avoid, by bad sex, I mean sexual immorality. Why we should not misuse sex? Paul says, the will of God. Second one is honoring our neighbor. And the third one is the judgment of God. So let's take the first one. The will of God. So Francis. <laughs> Francis is the guy that coordinated service. Francis is one of the leaders at City Church. And there's something he likes to say that there's an answer that answers almost every question. Not Jesus. There's an answer that answers every question, and that answer is, it depends. <laughs> so let's test it. Are you free after church? How is the sermon going? <laughs> it depends. But it also works for questions we can ask about what God wants us to do. For example, does God want Tedo to drive a Benz? Does God want David Idoko to get married? <laughs> but on this one, there is no ambiguity whatsoever in verse 3. It says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Paul tells the Thessalonians, and by extension us, that God's ultimate plan is for us to be holy. Holy means to be separate, in a nutshell, for us to become like him. But what is God like? Bible tells us in Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 that God's eyes are too pure to behold evil. So God is morally perfect. But he also tells us in Psalm 16 verse 11 that in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand side there are pleasures forevermore. So God is not only morally perfect, he's also perfectly happy. He's also perfectly satisfied. So we can say that one of the ways that sex according to God's way leads to us becoming more like Christ is that when we do it God's way, it leads to the, it has the best chances of long-term happiness. It leads to mutual flourishing. And we need to get past this idea that God is against sex. And yes, I know that the church has been responsible for propagating this idea. But the truth is that God invented sex. Sex is God's idea. And the Bible is full of people having happy, ecstatic, enjoyable sex. There's an entire book of the Bible that is dedicated to celebrating sex between a man and his wife, the Songs of Solomon. Here's my point. The reason God calls us to abstain from fornication, to abstain from sexual immorality, is not because he's against sex. 
but because he wants you, if you get married, to have the best sex of your life. I'll say it again. The reason why God tells us to avoid sexual immorality morality, is not because he's a party pooper, but because he's after your joy. The book of Genesis gives us such a beautiful picture. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, it says, Adam and his wife were both naked, but yet they felt no shame. With sex within the covenant of marriage, there is no hurry. There is no fear of being discovered. There is no fear of being abandoned. There is no pressure to perform. You have time to open your hearts to each other. It has the conditions inbuilt for mutual satisfaction and flourishing. But when we live, like in verse 5, in passionate loss like the Gentiles who do not know God, the result is damage to us and to others. The second reason he gives us, honoring our neighbor, verse 6, he says, 6a, that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or a sister. Some versions use the words violate, defraud, exploit. Now, sex was designed by God to be something that is self-giving, something that is facing outwards. And this is part of the reason, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why masturbation is wrong is because it distorts the outward-facing nature of sex and faces it inwards. So sex is meant to be facing outwards, but at the roots of fornication, at the root of sexual immorality, is a life of self-centeredness that leads us to viewing and subsequently using people as objects. And for the Thessalonian Christians, what Paul is saying here would have had two direct implications on two groups of people, on slaves and on women. So first one, slaves. So what I said earlier about what was expected of men and women in Thessalonica only applied for people that had status, for free citizens. If you were a slave, all bets were off. You existed to be used in whatever way that your master wished. It didn't matter whether you were a man, you were a woman, you were a child. You were used anyhow you like. So there are um, um, writings of people who, their king was that they castrated their slaves and continued sleeping with them perpetually. But Paul is saying, you cannot take advantage of people this way. You cannot treat people this way. How about women? Women, if you're a free woman, you were better than slaves, a bit. But also, women were basically property in this culture. In fact, the reason why adultery was frowned upon was because it was considered a form of theft from the man that controlled the woman. But Paul in this scripture, and um, I know modern translations call it, say, brothers and sisters in verse 1. Paul is actually writing to men. By telling the men, you cannot sleep with multiple women, He's saying you need to get rid of this consumer mindset that you, Muen, exists for me. So you, I will take friendship from you. You, I will take somebody to um, raise my children. You, I'm just going to take sex from you. He's saying this buffet mentality has to go. But also by calling men to the same sexual standards as women, telling them to abstain from sexual immorality. Remember, adultery was frowned upon for women. So by calling men and women to the same sexual standards, he's making a statement that women are not less than men. They are equal in the sight of God, and because of that, they are worthy of dignity and honor. Why? Because there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. You want to say amen? You should have said the louder one. And I want to just tell you, if you're a lady here and you struggle with reconciling your faith with fighting for the rights of women, can you see that there is really no contradiction? The idea that the Bible is against women is a myth. In fact, the Bible is the only basis upon which we can argue and fight for equal rights for women. But talking about treating your wife as an object, it's possible to not be cheating on your wife, not sleeping with multiple women. It's possible to not be physically assaulting your wife. And thank God there's been a lot of light lately on physical assault. But you could still be treating your wife as an object. If your definition of a good marriage is that she exists to fulfill your own dreams. You're not equally as passionate as about your wife's dreams. If you are always right, if when you guys have sex, sex is only about you and your satisfaction, if your marriage is characterized by you taking, 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 then you're treating your wife as an object. And men, we cannot score ourselves on this. You need to ask your wife. You need to have a conversation with her and repent based on the feedback she gives you. But Paul also talks about taking advantage, defrauding people. Let me just give this illustration. There's a song about waiting for marriage by a Nigerian artist. I'm not going to call his name. It came out in 2008, and it's called If Love is a Crime. <laughs> and the lyrics go, go, go to us. And when he's talking about waiting for sex, some lyrics go like this. Under the right ceiling, with the right person, a person deserving all that special kind of loving. And if you're dating... <laughs> oh, I said loving. <laughs> if you're dating someone... Guys, let's come back together. If you're dating someone, actions speak louder than words. So abstaining from sexual acts, abstaining from sexual immorality is making a statement. You're saying that this person deserves better than to be treated shabbily. You're saying, because I honor this person, we will only do these things when I can share my, my whole being irrevocably with that person under the right ceiling of the covenant of marriage. But the guy who sang this song was actually onto something very profound here. <laughs> Coming. <laughs> because the word fornication in the King James language actually comes from the Latin word phonix, which means a type of ceiling. So, <laughs> sexual immorality is, real, is literally under the wrong ceiling. And when you do things like when you, when you have sex or commit such sexual acts under the wrong ceiling, you're also making a statement. What are you saying? You're saying, I want something from you. Not you, but something from you. I don't have time to wait. You exist to me as only the means by which I can satisfy my desire. And like a pastor told someone he was counseling, he said, instead of saying, I love the girl, you should have said, I love myself and myself only. And for that purpose, I misuse the girl. I love myself and myself only. And for that purpose, I misuse, I misuse the girl. I defrauded her. I took advantage of her. But there's another way where we can treat people as objects with respect to sex. 
And when you, that's when you say, I'm not going to have sex because I am horny. I'm going to have sex because I am lonely. Because I want attention. Because I want approval. It's still about you. You're still taking from the person, but now the person is, an ob is still an object, but now not an object of satisfaction, but an object of validation, of security, of solace. Sex in that situation is still about you. You are doing exactly the same thing. But beyond that, sexual immorality doesn't affect just the two people involved. It affects other people. And so the context of this passage is actually talking about people who sleep with someone who is married. And if you cheat on your spouse, and many of us are not there yet, but we could be in inappropriate friendships that are leading to that conclusion. Cheating on your spouse is one of the worst things you could ever do to them. <laughs> you not only betray their trust, you break their spirit, you break their joy, you break their sense of self, you have defrauded them, you exploit them, you violate them. And it's not any wonder, my third reason, that Paul says in verse 6, that the Lord will punish all who commit these sins as we told you and warned you before. In other words, you're playing with grace. <laughs> and many people say, we cannot, don't talk about the wrath of God. Don't, don't talk about God's wrath. You should draw people with the love of Christ. Tell them, oh, Jesus Christ loves you. But we cannot, we see here, we cannot be more biblical than the Bible. Paul uses the real threat of eternal judgment on believers. So what is going on here? How do we <laughs> reconcile this and other passages of warning with what the Bible tells us also about God having destined us to eternal life? Now, if you've been trained in first aid, or probably seen it in an American movie, there's an equipment called a defibrillator. And what it does is it's delivers a high-energy electric shock to someone who is undergoing cardiac arrest to save the life of that person. And I think that it's possible to be in a form of spiritual cardiac arrest, for our consciences to be so numb, for us to be so deep in the fog of sin that we cannot see straight. Pastor Femi told us two weeks ago about our spiritual tank. It's possible to be on reserve or empty. And at that point in time, what we need is these warnings to shock us, to act as a defibrillator, to jolt us out of our sin and turn us to God in repentance. Someone, and this is a true story, so listen. Someone that has saved porn on his computer and put it in a folder and named the folder Don Moen. <laughs> <laughs> the message to that person is not, you're a good, good father. No, no, no. The person needs to hear that the Lord will punish all those that commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. <laughs> Doesn't this contradict internal security? No, 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 no. The only way a defibrillator can work is if the person still has some life in them. If the person is dead, it doesn't make a difference. The proof that you are truly God's child is that you will hear the warning and repent from your sin. And it's easy to laugh. It's actually very funny. And say, I don't have a folder full of porn that I named Domwen on my computer. But there, are there other ways that you are ignoring God's commands as regards sex? 
Are you performing sexual acts? And for you, it's just normal. I don't care. There's nothing wrong with it. The Bible calls this state the root of bitterness. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 18, B to 19, it says, it says, Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this one covenant, what does he do? He blesses himself in his heart and says, I will be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Why are they saying we should not kiss? What's wrong with that? In fact, I must kiss. <laughs> where is the line of sexual sin? Show me where the line is so I can stay on that line. In fact, I can cross it, but one leg will still be on the line. The Bible goes on to say in verse 20 of that chapter, that the Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the causes written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Like the preacher said, there's no such thing as safe sex outside of marriage because the Lord will punish all who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. And I think I don't need to remind us that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So what do we do? Like Tommy said on Friday, way forward. Where do we go from here? I'm going to give us three steps, three tools we can put in our toolbox that will help us fight against sexual immorality. Three things, real quick. Awareness, avoidance, and exercise. The first one, awareness. We need to be aware of the devil's strategies. We literally just finished a series on this. The devil is always presenting sin in a different light. Yes, masturbation is wrong, but is it not better and cheating on your spouse. Yes, it's okay to confess your sins, but wouldn't it make more sense if you confess it after you've overcome, so you give it as a testimony. You'll say, this is what the Lord brought me from. And so that's how three years have passed. You have not confessed and gotten the help that you need. Or he's always negotiating for an inch so he can take a mile. So you say, okay, you are talking about kissing, but it's hugging a sexual act. It's not now. What is, what is wrong with hugging? So you can hug, but make it a deep hug so you can communicate how, 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 you, how much you love this person. And when you commit to that, he will now say, just, just turn your head, just turn your head, just turn your head. <laughs> and when you start kissing, you say, ah, you have committed sexual act. You have already committed fornication. In fact, Jesus said, if you lost, you have committed adultery. So just continue. <laughs> You're already guilty. Just continue. You need to be aware of the devil's strategies. And that thing that our mind always tells us that you cannot stop because you've gone too far is not true. You can actually stop anytime. But awareness leads us to avoidance. So there's a saying, there's a proverb. It says, three near three, as in three, as in three. Three near three, now make monkey smart. Let me say it again. Three, near three. Now you make monkey smart. If you put the monkey in open space, let's see how far. <laughs> Let me say it in a way that we may understand. If you want to be successful in a fit farm, the first thing that you need to do is not to join a gym. First thing you need to do is to clear your fridge. 
Sometimes, the reason why we are falling to temptation is because we are setting ourselves up. For many of us, this is our entire strategy to fight temptation. Can I have the picture? <laughs> we are doing ourselves. We need to stop putting ourselves in situations where it's hard for us to resist. The Bible puts it this way in Romans 13. It says, put you on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And I want to appeal to married people that are here. You need to come alongside people that are dating. You need to ask them how they are doing. You need to, more importantly, open your houses to them. Let them have places where they can meet and hang out and spend time together that are not hotbeds of temptation. Last thing I'm going to talk about, last key I'm going to give you rather, is exercise. So I'm not boasting, but I know quite a bit about Fit Farm. I know I don't look like it. <laughs> I don't look like it, but I, I, I know quite a bit about Fit Farm. So listen, listen to me. I'm serious. <laughs> So the curious thing about the exercises that build the most muscle is that many of them actually don't look like what you encounter in real life. Think about the bench press, for example. Everybody should bench. Whether you're a man or a woman, you should bench. But how many times have you been in a situation where you'll be lying and I have to bend something on a bench and I have to bend something up? But despite not looking like what happens in real life, it's doing something to your body that somehow translates to strength outside of the gym. What am I saying? When we say, read your Bible, pray, go for gospel community, be present in Sunday service. It's easy to neglect them and say, I don't see how this applies in my life. But they are kind of like the bench press. They are doing something to you that translates somehow to strength in the place of temptation. And here's one of the ways they work. C.S. Lewis says, C.S. Lewis says, <laughs> at our will can be looked at, there are three components to our will. And so he said that there is your stomach, which is an icon for what you want, for your appetites. There is also your brain, or your head, which is what you know. But lastly, there is what he calls the heart, which represents what you love. And the second reason that we keep falling into sin it's because we are trying to control our stomach with our head alone. How many times have you done things that you knew it was wrong, but you still did it anyway? What we need is our head working with our heart. Because it's not enough to know the right things. We also have to love the right things. And what these means of grace do for us, all these things, reading your Bible, praying, all those things, what they do is that they begin to orient our hearts in the right direction. They begin to make us love the things we ought to love. And we'll see that the fight against temptation becomes easier. But then you may say, everything you're saying, I've heard it before. None of this is new to me. I'm still struggling. I'm drowning. I feel like there's no hope. I'm not even in a relationship. Nobody is in talking stage with me. So I cannot see a finish line 
that can hold on towards that eventually I'll start having guilt free sex. Where do I go from here? This leads me to my final point. Better than sex. Verse 8 says, Therefore, whoever disregards this instruction disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And there's a way we can disregard this instruction. We can say, like one of my friends told me after the last series on sex, that Pastor Femi can tell us to be eunuchs, Abby, but he'll go to his house and be enjoying a sex-part married life. <laughs> and so the person did not say that, but if you use that premise and now say, because of that, I'm not going to listen to anything. Paul, the Bible is telling us that this instruction is not coming from Pastor Femi. It's not coming from Toki. It's coming from God. But there's another way still that we can disregard this instruction. When we say, I don't think it's possible. I don't think I can be free from sexual sin. The Bible is saying that whoever disregards this instruction disregards not man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. I'm doomed to a life of sexual sin. I cannot see a way out. Therefore, anyone who disregards this instruction disregards not man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Nobody knows the things I've done. I have turned away from God to serve the idol of lust. If what it means to please God is to avoid sexual immorality, then I have no hope whatsoever of pleasing God. Therefore, whoever disregards this instruction disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit. And my best part of this passage is that he doesn't say he gave you his Holy Spirit, which of course he did when he became a Christian. He said he gives you his Holy Spirit. Present tense, he gives you his Holy Spirit, which means that right now, in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your mess, you can draw near to the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And what do we do with this grace? Paul says it in verse 1. He says, you should walk in order to please God. Walking means that you put one step in front of the other and keep putting next step in front of the other. That you say, yes, I stumbled today, but I will keep walking. Yes, I fell yesterday, but I will keep walking. I will keep repenting of my sin. I will keep believing the gospel. I will take the next step. Sin will not have the final say. Sin will not have the last laugh. I want to appeal to you, brothers and sisters, do not disregard the power of God. Do not believe the lie of the devil that God is unable to save you. But the Bible also tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, that God has also put his seal on us and gives us his Holy Spirit, not only to empower us, but as a guarantee. A guarantee of what? I guarantee that God is perfectly committed to finish the work he has started in your life. I guarantee that God is committed to seeing you become someone that pleases him. God is so committed to transforming us that he becomes a man and dies on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. The one person of whom God testified, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. The one person who was tempted in every respect as we are yet without sin. Jesus, the son of God, who pleased God perfectly, was killed so that undeserving sinners like you and me can become sons of God in whom he is well pleased. Because he resurrected and ascended and sent the Holy Spirit, we have hope. We can wait 
Because if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, he's going to give life to our mortal bodies by the spirit that dwells in us. Do you see God gives you his Holy Spirit? Not just to empower you, but to assure you that you have a secure destiny. That you're not waiting in vain. Because for the Christian, your ultimate goal is not waiting until you're married so that you can have sex. Your ultimate goal is the thing that sex points to. Your ultimate goal is the thing that sex is a foreshadow of. The thing that sex is a faint echo, echo of. You know with God in an ecstasy of love and delight so incredible that sex itself becomes obsolete. Because it's okay to use a candle in the night. But when morning comes... When the day starts dawns in our hearts, when the sun of righteousness rises, all that is left to do to the candle of sex is to extinguish it. And it's through this hope that one day we'll enter into full union with Christ, that one day we'll be transformed, that one day sin will no longer reign in us. It's through this hope that God's Spirit supplies strength to us. And that's why Paul can say in verse 1, verse 3 of chapter 1 of this book that you have an endurance inspired by hope. It is through this hope that we are able to endure. We are able to wait for sex, but beyond that, we are able to wait for what sex points to. We are able to wait for what is bigger than sex because you have a sure hope. You have a hope that is as inevitable as breakfast. But this hope does not put us to shame. Because God's Spirit has been poured out to us. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church. Love Jesus. Love people. Love Lagos.